So as some of you know, we originally planned in 2019, we did not do a trip with the intention of making 2020 a really huge trip. <laughs> that didn't happen. And then we thought, well, 2021, well, the borders were still closed. So it's only, as Mike said, been recently that the borders have really opened um, back up and made it at least uh, for our church realistic to look at going. So we would like to, in July of 2023, um, take as big a team as we can down there. So we hope to have those dates um, to you soon so you can um, schedule off work and um, start putting aside your pennies for the trip. Um, but I encourage you, one of the, the goals that, that we have is for every family to be uh, represented on going down to Belize at some point in the next um, five years. So I um, encourage you, if you've never been on an international trip, it will, uh, a mission trip, it will just blow your mind and encourage you uh, like crazy. You will see the Lord do some powerful things. And if you have been on an international mission trip, then we could use your help um, and experience as well, helping us out. So um, plan on July 2023, and uh, we would love to have, <coughs> actually, we'd love to have all of you. With that, we're going to get into the Word. Let's turn to Obadiah. We are in Obadiah, and we are looking at verse 10 today, starting there. It says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Let's pray. Father, we got quite a few things to come before you today. One, we want to come before you and intercede for our brothers and sisters in Belize. We thank you for uh, the good word delivered in person from Mike, that things are going well there, that your work is still continuing on. We thank you that we've been privileged to partake in helping bless them during their tough times um, the past couple years. Lord, we look forward to going back and being able to uh, minister in person to them again and even receive ministry um, from our brothers and sisters there. So continue to strengthen uh, the churches in Belize, Lord. We also pray for our fall party uh, coming up in uh, a few weeks. Lord, let, let people hear the gospel and respond in faith to it. There are many, many, many in this city that you have called to be your own, Lord. So let that be one of the days that is the day of salvation for them. Thank you, Father, uh, for our kids. Uh, we continue to pray for them. Lord, grab each of their hearts at an early age. Let them truly trust in you uh, as, as their uh, great God and King that you are, Lord. That they would know your son Jesus, truly know him, and bow the knee to him. Lord, bless our time as we get into the word. Uh, open our eyes and our hearts to see and hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a brief review on the, on the book of Obadiah is Obadiah was written as basically a judgment against the land of Edom, against the Edomites, because of something that they had done uh, to Israel, which today we actually find out um, some of those details. The first, basically, nine verses talk about the judgment that's coming, and one of the main things that it hits on is the pride that the Edomites had. Uh, why did they have the pride? We looked at because of their physical location and because they thought they basically were unconquerable, 
in, in, their, um, in how they were situated. But today we see what is the, the, the crux of the matter of why God is bringing judgment against the Edomites, and it's going to be laid out here uh, for us. So we see the specifics of what they did to Israel. Then there's a third section, which we'll get to probably in a couple weeks, where we see future judgment talked about. And then uh, at the very end, there is a message of hope uh, for Israel and by way of extension for us. So we can see there was multiple infractions in the passage I just read that was done by Edom to Israel. The overarching uh, theme here is that of violence. It says in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Well, what is that violence? Well, then it goes to note what the different things are that happened. If we read in verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof. So what occurred was Israel was attacked by a foreign nation, and there's um, some discussion as to where does this happen in the chronology of the history of Israel. Some some believe it happened earlier in its history, and it was sometime during the reign of King Jehoram. Some believe this more references the Babylonian exile. Um, I would probably uh, lean towards it referencing the Babylonian exile, where the Babylonians came in and had basically utterly destroyed Jerusalem, and then Edom comes in and takes advantage of that fact. Be that as it may, <clears throat> whatever the, the, the chronology is, there was some power greater than Edom that had come in and attacked Israel and left it in shambles so that Edom could come in um, and kind of have easy pickings, so to speak. So what happens first is the enemy comes and Israel's getting attacked uh, by a superpower, so to speak, and Edom is just kind of standing aloof. They're letting it go on. They're just sitting idly by and watching. Then it goes on and mentions uh, in verse 12, look what it says. It says, do not gloat over the day of your brother. So they didn't just stand aloof and let it go on. Then they started to get kind of excited and were happy at the destruction that was occurring to Israel. They're glad at the destruction. So first they're, they're watching it happen. They're standing aloof. They're not getting involved. Then they're happy at the destruction. But then look what happens next in verse 13. It says, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. So what do they do? They end up participating in the pillaging. They end up taking the wealth. Then it goes on. It gets even worse. Verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So they go further, and first they stop the people. So the Israelites, I mean, they're fleeing, right? I mean, the, the land is being ravaged. The city is being ravaged. <clears throat> slaughter is occurring. So there's, there's some people that survive, and they're fleeing. And what do the Edomites do? Well, they, they stopped the people from fleeing. They cut off their way of escape. Not only did they cut off their way of escape, what did they do? They take the prisoners and hand them over to that superpower. So this is why the judgment comes on the Edomites. In a time of Israel's uh, distress, they not only stood idly by, they were very much involved in the destruction. If, keep your place in Obadiah. Look at what Deuteronomy says. In Deuteronomy 23, the Israelites had a direct command from the Lord to do no ill towards the Edomites. It says in verse 7, Deuteronomy 23, you shall not abhor an Edomite. Why? For he is your brother. So there's this command. Now, did the Israelites follow it? No. Not all the time. Did the Edomites follow it? No. In fact, here we see it. Now, here's the thing about this passage back in Obadiah. <clears throat> there's two ways to make a negative in, in Hebrew. Uh, one is the Hebrew word al, the other is the Hebrew word lo. 
Al is, is like an immediate prohibition. So something specific is happening, and you're wanting them to stop the specific instance of what is occurring right then. Low would be more of a, a general prohibition. So if you think of the Ten Commandments, you think it's a specific instance that's in mind, or you think it's general prohibition when we get all the Ten Commandments? General prohibition, right? Well, here, uh, what's in use is, is Al, the immediate prohibition. Why? Because Obadiah, by the Spirit of God, is direct, directly referencing specific acts that occurred. Now, I know some versions, uh, I think the NIV, NKJV, and KJV, they all put some type of translation along the lines of uh, should not, they should not do this in the passage we just read, instead of do not. Um, it's probably best to just translate it straight away without adding any additional wording. The Hebrew makes it just like very staccato-like. So do not do this. You know, do not gloat. Do not rejoice. Do not boast. Do not enter. Do not gloat. I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea that is given there. But these are commands that are being given in the idea of explaining what occurred. Like, these are the things you did, and you should not have done them. You were prohibited from doing them, and yet you went ahead and do it, did it. One theologian studying, studying it uh, had the, uh, he noted this. This is interesting. The repeated language pattern here in these verses, there's like a cadence to it. And it would have been like the cadence of the beat of a drummer as war was coming upon the enemy. So there's this cadence like, hey, you guys already did destruction, and as they potentially would have read this, they would have read this cadence to the Hebrew and, and, and felt almost like a coming fear upon them not, that now the enemy was marching against them. Over and over, if we did a little exercise here and we counted all the times that day is used, it's used a whole lot. A whole, whole lot, which becomes important when we get into the rest of the, of, of the book here. But notice what kind of days these are. It starts out just by saying in verse, in verse 11, on the day, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off as well. But then it continues to get a little bit further in detail. In verse 12, notice what it is. It's the day of your brother. The day of your brother. So where there should have been peace and harmony and having his back, oh, that was lacking, the day of your brother. Then it goes on to the day of his misfortune in verse 12. And then further, the day of distress. Then three times in verse 13, it's described as the day of calamity. And then back in verse 14 to the day of distress. The point is this. This was no small deal. This was no small skirmish that occurred. This was no, oh, just a handful of the Edomites came. Now this was the entire nation coming against the entire nation of Israel. God was displeased at what they did and how they took advantage of the situation. Think about that for a moment, though. All the different things they did. Like, how depraved does a society have to be to partake in such wickedness? I mean, we're talking about, you know, one, there's obviously pride. They're standing aloof. They're not helping out. Then they're, they're rejoicing at, at the... Israelites downfall then they're like hey let's 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 see what we got for ourselves let's take what we can so then they're then they're pillaging and then they're human trafficking right people are trying to escape they're capturing them and handing them over to the enemy how depraved does society have to be to partake in such wickedness listen man left to his own devices and ways is fallen he does devious things and acts wickedly. Like if we decided to take one week a year and have no laws, do you think people would be basically good or basically bad? Do you think that would cause a problem? One of the uses of the law is to, is to keep people in check, right? To restrain sin. And sometimes we hear, well, people are basically good. People are basically good. You know, I think the idea behind that is, well, most people aren't doing wicked, nasty, horrible things like murdering people, like human trafficking people. But what does the Bible say in regards to the human heart? 
Because when we're comparing different sins, what we usually do, and we're all guilty of it, is we usually compare our sins to the worst possible sin imaginable. So we can just feel a little bit better about our sin. Like, oh, I'm not that bad. But when we, what we're supposed to do, and what the Bible does, is it doesn't say, oh, compare yourself to see how you weigh up against other people. That's not what it does. It says, uh, compare yourself to what God's standard is. Compare yourself to God himself. And what does it say? Well, look at Romans chapter 3, and we see it there. Romans 3. So Paul starts in Romans 3, verse 9. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. How many are righteous? None. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the idea that you might sometimes hear called original sin. That we are all fallen because of Adam's first sin. And what happened is Adam's sin became ours. When Adam sinned, that sin was imputed to all his progeny, all that came after him. And what a part of us is affected by sin? Every single part of who we are. Every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our heart, our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies, it's all affected by sin. And everyone is subject to the decay and destruction caused by sin. Everyone. Our actions, our attitudes, and our very natures all make us guilty of sin. Look at Romans Chapter 5. Let's start with uh, verse 9. Uh, you know what? We're going to start with uh, verse 12. We're going to read a little bit of it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that man? Adam. And death through sin... And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now who is the one to come? Good. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Okay, did you notice that? Many died through one man's trespass. Who, who did the trespass? Adam. Okay, so if many died through Adam's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, this whole passage is worthy of many, many, many sermons. <clears throat> we don't have time to even give it much time today. But when you read it, what he's doing is he's comparing Adam and Christ. And we just read that Adam was the type of the one who is to come. So he's saying, here's what we have in Adam, and here's what we have in Christ. So he goes on. 17, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, for all men, did you, did you catch that? One trespass, so one sin leads to condemnation for all. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay, so Adam sins. Guess what? That's passed on to us. So we, some people have different terms for it. Original sin, though, is usually the term that you will hear. Now, let me ask you this. We're back in the garden. Adam and Eve are there. Who sinned first? It's not a trick question. <laughs> Eve, right? Eve. <clears throat> so why is it laid at Adam's feet? He's the head, right? He's the head of the family. He was to lead, guide, nurture, protect. What happens? The serpent comes, attacks his family, and not only did he not protect his family, he let his family, in this case Eve, sin, and he himself participates in the sin, right? Like failure. Failure, failure, failure. But who does God call to give an account of what occurred? Adam, right? I just let's, let's look at it so you see it. So uh, we want to do what James was saying, right? And not just say it, that's what it says. We want to look at the passage. I'll even give you time to turn there, Genesis 3. Okay, verse 6, Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and, that they, knew that, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, here's where it is, the Lord God called to who? To whom? To the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? It's in the singular, not plural. We, we lose that, obviously, in English. But here, he's saying, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So he calls Adam to account because he's, well, at, at that point, he's the head of his family, but he's, he's, he's our representative of, of the entire human race. <clears throat> he calls Adam to account. He was the head of the family. So we inherit, if you want to say, sin from Adam in two ways. One, we have the original, what we could call original guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. He is guilty, and God says, therefore, we are guilty. He is a sinner, as we read, and we are sinners. Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So there's that aspect of us being guilty. But then there's the aspect of what we might call original pollution or original corruption. We have a, a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. We have become fallen, and that fallenness is now passed on to all of us. In the garden, before the fall, he had the ability to choose righteousness, but he also had the ability to choose wickedness. And he chose the wickedness. Fallen man ends up in a fallen state and ends up in a, in a position of no, what, what the Latin is, non posta non pecare. He, he has not the ability to not sin. Meaning, what does fallen man do? He sins, and he sins, and he sins, and he sins. Because he's fallen. And so he's in a bondage to sin, and that's what he does. He sins. So we have this uh, sinful disposition, you could call it, a sinful nature if you want. And David talks about it in Psalm 51, if you look there. In Psalm 51, verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now this whole psalm is going to focus on David and his sin. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then notice what he says here in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now he's not saying here, because the focus is on him and on who he is, he's, he's not saying that, that the, the act, the sexual act is, is sinful. He's not saying that when his mom and dad um, had sex, that that was in some way, you know, that, that's sin. That's like Roman uh, Catholic teaching. No, he's saying that he came into the world sinful. From birth, he was sinful. Born into sin, just like every one of us. And moms and dads that have raised children, we can testify that children are born with a tendency to sin. (laughs) Do we have to teach children how to do wrong? No. No. What do we have to do? We have to teach them how to do right. No, they discover on their own how to do the wrong. What's a, a young kid's favorite word? No, yeah, exactly. No. So parents have to teach how to do right. So what does this mean for mankind? Well, it means mankind has fallen, and he has a total lack of spiritual good. And he has an inability to do good before God. Some, some might call it total depravity or total inability. But <clears throat> the idea is, is that fallen man in the unbelieving state cannot please God. He's an enemy. He is an enemy with God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 1, Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. And then look at this description. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were, believers were, by nature children of wrath. Unbelievers are, by nature, children of wrath. Why are they children of wrath? Because they're in rebellion to God. As we talked about last week, the issue that mankind has is rebellion. Yes, there's all sorts of different issues out there, but the issue is rebellion. We are in rebellion to God. We are his enemies. We are at war with him, and when we are in the state of unbelieving, when unbelievers are walking around, Therefore, by nature, what will happen to them if they stay in that state? God's wrath will be poured out upon them. Therefore, by nature, what's our nature? It's it's that sinful nature that we inherited from Adam, that we were given. What happens? Well, God in his mercy sends his son, right? But think back for a moment. Is this how God set up his world to to be in a fallen state? No, we just read it. It was created perfectly. It was a perfect world. Sin entered the world through one man. Now, sometimes people say, well, that's not fair. Like, I didn't choose him to represent me. Well, you've probably said that about different presidents as well, right? But here we are. But you think it's not fair that Adam's choice affected us, and it did. And now we're guilty too. Here's the thing. One, we can complain about it, but the truth is we have committed many, 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 many sins for which God also holds us guilty. So we can say, well, that's not fair, but the truth is we have done enough of our own accord to be quite guilty before the Lord. But here's the thing, and this is very important, Just as Adam was our representative without us having a say in it, so too 
is Christ our representative. And we didn't have a say in it. But we have no problem with him representing us, right? We're quite glad for that. But look back in Romans, back in, in chapter 5. Because I cut it short. In verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, and then look what it says, So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So, <clears throat> there's basically two people that we can be in. If you're walking in Adam, you're walking in, the, in an unbelieving state. You're in an unbeliever. You have not been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So you get exactly what Adam gets in his fallen state, which is, by nature, the wrath of God. You are children walking in that wrath. But if you come to Christ, then guess what? It's like a transfer of membership, so to speak. You come from out of Adam, and you come to into Christ. So now, instead of getting everything that Adam got in his fallen children and progeny, you get everything that Christ earned for you. All the blessings of Christ are now for you. Because why? Because you're in Christ. So you've got Romans talking about the old man. Well, the old man is, is Adam. But what, what happens? Hey, you're part of the new man. You're the new creation that we talked about last week, 2 Corinthians 5, right? So all those things that we are naming, the desires and the emotions and the all those things, like it's new creation. But that's not something that we've done of our own accord. It's not like we t took like this uh, spiritual shower or something and clean cleaned ourselves up on our own. No. God himself does that for us. We can't do it on our own. He is the one that comes and cleanses us. Now, sometimes people say, well, does that mean unbelievers can't do any good? Like, oh, my neighbor, he, he's such a, a great guy and he's bringing stuff over all the time and, and helping me out. <clears throat> Here's how one theologian explained it. I'll just quote him. In these passages, Scripture is not denying that unbelievers can, can do good in human so society in some senses, but it is denying that they can do any spiritual good or be good in terms of a relationship with God. Okay, did you catch that? It's denying that they can do any spiritual good or be good in terms of a relationship with God. Think about it for a moment. What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Do unbelievers do that? No. So the, the first and greatest commandment, day after day, minute after minute, breath after breath, they're walking in complete disobedience to that. Now sometimes <clears throat> you talk to an unbeliever and they're like, well, I'm not in rebellion to God. And that thought might not even occur to them. It might not, it never might have thought, crossed their mind. But then, then when you respond, well, if you're not in rebellion to God, then repent from your ways and trust in him. What do many of them say? No, right? Well, guess what? If you're not submitting to God, right? If you're not repenting from your ways, if you're not trusting in him, then you're in rebellion. Because it's either his way or our way. Right? There's just one, one of two ways. So, okay, then you're in rebellion because God, why are you in rebellion? Because God has authority over you and you're deciding to shirk that. You want to go your own way. That's rebellion. Doing your own thing, going your own way. The sign you aren't in rebellion would be your willingness to repent and trust in him. Well, what does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And sometimes we talk about that. Jesus is our Savior. Does this mean anything to you when we make that statement? I mean, does it really mean anything? Because Jesus is not just the Savior, which is true, but he is your Savior. Not just a Savior, he's yours. And Christ comes, and what does he do? He redeems us. He redeems the people for his own. So he comes back, right? Broken relationship with God that we have. And what does Christ come to do? To make that relationship whole again. That's only possible by him taking, oh, that nature of wrath that we were talking about, children by nature. Someone has to take the wrath because sin has been done. So what does he do? He bears the wrath of God on the cross 
God poured out his wrath on his own sin because of what you did. So sometimes when, when we're reading those things about the Edomites, we're like, man, that's awful, that's horrible. Well, guess what? That's us. That is us. And if we don't think our sin is, is that heavy, then we really don't know our sin that well. And <clears throat> truth be told, you talk to people that are mature believers that have been walking with the Lord for years and years and years, and some decades and decades and decades, and while God is doing a sanctifying work in them, when you ask them, they're like, I have realized how horrible and wretched my heart is. Amen. The closer you get to the Lord, what happens? The more you realize how pure and amazing and awesome and righteous He is, and you aren't. And God in His mercy, what does He do for us? He gives us the very righteousness of His own Son. We have to be not just free from sin to enter his presence. We have to have a righteousness. A righteousness that the Bible says is not our own. We can't produce a righteousness on our own. Self-righteousness, guess where that ends you up in? Hell. Okay? There's going to be a whole lot of righteous people in hell. They're going to be self-righteous. But if you had God's righteousness, there's only one place you're going. You have the holiness of God covering you. You will be in his presence. You are made whole with him. You have a relationship with him in a fellowship that is so sweet, it puts anything you could possibly experience on this earth to shame. So enjoy the fellowship that you have with him. It also means that we're going to sin against others. Well, what do we do when we sin against others? You know what we do? We go and make it right. We humble ourselves. We don't let it linger. And if the other party bears guilt, you know, that's on them to take care of. They got to take care of their sin, but you got to take care of your sin. And I was thinking about this today. I've apologized to people believing that their sin was the greater sin. Now, I was probably wrong many of those times. But I realized I, I'm going to at least own what I think is mine to own. Even though I think theirs is the greater sin, I'm going to own my sin and take care of what I think is mine. And that's what you all need to do, okay? It doesn't matter if you think it's the greater sin or I'm going to wait till that person. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear. If there's an offense of any sort, what are we supposed to do? Go make it right, right? You're getting ready to offer your gift at the altar. What are you supposed to do? Put down the altar. Put down the gift. Leave the altar. Go make it right. So own, own your sin. Take care of your sin. Make right what you need to with your sin. Let God deal with that person and their sin. All right? You're not the Holy Spirit. But we're also going to be sinned against. Now, do you think, let me ask you this, do you think you sin against others more, or do you think others sin against you more? Maybe that is a trick question. But in other words, like, where does the majority of the sin occur? On your part, as you're sinning against others, or on their part, as they sin against you? Because it sure seems like, at least in my heart, I am sure quick to, to recognize the sins of other people against me pretty quickly. But then how quick am I to recognize my sin when I'm doing it to others? What's our response when we are sinned against? A lot of times we act out of brokenness. But the question is, what's our heart towards our personal enemies. Where's our heart at? Because it needs to be walking in a, in, a, in a state of forgiveness, in a state of love. Here's what Frederick Douglass, the 19th century black abolitionist, here's what he wrote to his former slave master back in 1848. He said this, I entertain no malice towards you personally. There is no roof now, that, that's pretty big, all right? Right there? You just stop. That's a nice short little letter. You could be done. I entertain, but he goes on, I entertain no malice towards you personally. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine. And there is nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. I am your fellow man, 
but not your slave. That's someone who, who knew forgiveness. That's a man who bears no ill will against someone whom he could easily have bore much ill will. Look at what Colossians chapter 3 says. Look what we're told to do here in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Notice what it says at the end, as the Lord has forgiven you. I mean, List for me, please, what sins of yours Jesus hasn't yet forgiven. Yeah, it's pretty silent, right? Because it's all. What are we supposed to do? Forgiving as Christ forgave us. Completely, wholly, entirely. Forgiving. Walking in that forgiveness. And let me just say this, brothers and sisters. This is important. God is here right now, and he is alive. And my question is, do we believe this? Like, do we believe that he's on the throne? Because he is on the throne ruling in righteousness. He is on the throne of thrones, and he is the king over every single nation on this earth. As much as he is in Belize, he is right here right now. As much as he is in China, he is in Peru, and he is reigning and ruling in righteousness however he sees fit. We can criticize him, which is rather foolish to do, because he has a perfect plan that he is carrying out and will see come to the very end. We're going to get to that in the coming weeks when it talks about in Obadiah the day of the Lord. And that day is drawing quite near. The end is coming upon us. But don't lose fact of the, of the truth that God is alive. And here he is doing all sorts of amazing works in our midst and across the world. The king of kings is what he is. The lord of lords. He is called, what does Abraham call him? Jehovah Jireh, right? The Lord will provide. He's going to provide for whatever we need. However bad it gets, however rough it gets, wherever we find ourselves, God is a God who provides. And so the question for us is, can we actively trust him to take him through whatever might come our way? Whatever the wickedness of man might lay before us. Will we trust him enough to say no to sin and yes to righteousness? He's the king of kings. We've been adopted into his kingdom. Heirs of the throne. We have what Christ has. The riches and riches and riches of heaven. We just we get a little sip at times right here. We have the Holy Spirit. How, what is the Holy Spirit? It's like the earnest deposit is what Ephesians says. He's placed as the deposit that God himself will come back to claim his bride. He has not forsaken her. So the question is, are we living in the shadows? Are we living in the light? You know, living in the light is kingdom living. It's kingdom focused. It's kingdom forward marching. Some are dwelling in the shadows. I say to you, get out of the shadows. Get into the light. Look what it says in Isaiah. Look what it says, Isaiah 60. This word is for us today. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. 
What's the light? And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. I mean, that's what it feels like at a time and a place we're at right now. Darkness over the land. But what does it say? But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And what's the, what's the result? Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. I mean, that's the prophecy there. God shines. What's the result? The nations come to the light. We have the light of Christ in us. It's a marvelous light. He is shining bright. So come to the light and bask in the glory of the light of Christ. We're not, we're not living in the shadows. You know, Colossians 2 talks about these are a shadow of the things to come. He's talking about like the Old Testament festivals and, and the holidays and the different setups. These are a shadow of the things to come. But then he says, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, do you want the shadow or the real thing? You want the shadow of a brand new 75-inch TV or the actual 75-inch TV? You want the shadow of a brand new 2023 Honda minivan? I'm speaking to the young moms here. Or do you want the actual 2023 Honda minivan? Like, we want the real thing, right? So if we're living in the shadows... I mean, it's like we're, we're, we're living Old Testament. It's like we're under the law. We're, we're thinking ourselves, uh, we, we've got all the rules and the regulations. Do not taste, do not touch. Colossians. But what do we learn? These are, 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 are a sign of the things to come. What is the substance? Christ. What is the substance? Christ. Christ is the very thing. And here he is in front of us. And what do we do sometimes in our own selfishness and sinfulness? We're just lurking in the shadows. But here he is, the beauty. The beauty of the word before us. Come to Jesus. Come to the beauty of the word. He is glorious. He is righteous. He is, well, he's on your side, but really, you're on his side, right? Like, he is for you. If he is for you, what? Who can be against us? Right? When you are on the side of righteousness, you are on the side of victory. If you walk in righteousness, if God is your own, if he's your heavenly father, then the world can do whatever it might. I was, I was <clears throat> uh, reading through a, a section of um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's um, The Gulag Archipelago uh, yesterday. I mean, it's like volumes and a couple volumes, like three volumes of, and it's all these different true stories that basically happened in the Russian, the gulag, the Russian prisons, <clears throat> um, you know, 150 years or so ago. Awful, awful stories that he recounts of his own personal experience and then other people's experience. And sometimes <clears throat> it's like Christ has come to set us free. We're prisoners. And we're living sometimes in the worst of the worst of the worst circumstances. You know what those circumstances are? Our own sinfulness and selfishness. And he throws open those doors, just like he did for the apostles when they were in prison. Throws open those doors, and he's like, come forth. Well, brothers and sisters, you know what we do sometimes because of our selfishness and sinfulness? It's like we go back in into that prison, and we close the door behind us. It doesn't lock but we act like we're living in prison. We're living in, in a state of prisonness, if you want. Anytime we want, because if we're believers, Christ has set us free, right? Amen? But what do we do? We live like prisoners at times. And when you think of a prison, I mean, you don't think of this bright, nice, beautiful walls and shiny, right? You think dark, damp, dimly lit. Like, that's the shadow living we're living in the prison. And here Christ has set us free. We are living contrary to the very thing that Christ has given us. He has so much more for us. So much more for us. So, so come out of that prison. It's not locked. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, it's not locked. Right? Now, if you haven't trusted in Christ ever, then it is locked, and you need him to come set you free. 
You can, you can try to get out all you want. Unbelievers really don't. <clears throat> but only Christ can set you free. But if you're a believer, some of us are still living in the prison. And it's time to get out of the prisonness. It's time to stop living in the prison. We're living like prisoners. We're not prisoners. We are children of the living God. Children of the living God. Look at 1 John chapter 3. So we all agree that our Heavenly Father loves us, right? So look what it says in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Okay, so He loves us. What kind of a love is it? That we should be called children of God. All sorts of titles that we can carry. Slave, servant, friend. No, man, the most precious, brothers and sisters, the most precious is children. Children of God. That's not just some like, oh, I think this would be a good setup for me, for me to do. No. <clears throat> we forget that the spiritual, God then takes and puts in the material for us to help better understand it. He originally and always was the Father. Okay? Then what does he set up in society? Families. Where there's, oh, a father, right? So ideally, the earthly reflects well on the, on the heavenly. But the heavenly was there first, right? So our heavenly father, he wants to exhibit his love for us. What does he do? Calls us into his family. He adopts us into his family. The very people who were his enemies, he brings into his kingdom. He doesn't just let them in the front entrance. No, he doesn't even let them into the hall where the great throne is. No, he, it's like he lets them... Uh, into his presence, lets him sit on his lap, if you will. He is the great king. It's like a father with the children. You know, uh, the, the greatest of the greatest of the greatest of the right-hand men to the king would not dream of being informal in the king's presence. Yet, when the four-year-old throws open the doors to the throne room and runs in and climbs up into his dad's lap, is there any impropriety there? Not at all. Not at all. That's the type of relationship that the Father has with us. Not wants with us. If we're believers, we have that relationship. Father and Son. It is ours. So let's enjoy it. And here we are, some of us, down ten levels below the king's throne in the dungeon. It's time to stop living in the dungeon and come out and come into the throne room with your Heavenly Father.